Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. Happy to be with you again this week. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, here we are. I'm glad to be with you, Kira. How's how are things? How's life? Things are good. Uh, feels like summer, which is fun. Um, seems like positive things are happening in the news, and that's exciting. Um, po- well, po- yeah. mixed, positive, and mixed, and and kind of all over the map, but but lots <laughs> As, of but yeah. generally positive. <laughs> right. Yes, it, it is. It's important to to highlight the positive. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I know what you mean. There have been so many interesting things happening in the past couple of weeks. And somehow it does make it nice that the weather is warming up here in the Bay. And it's mm-hmm. like, some, you know, it kind of gives it that feeling of, I don't know, of emergence. Um, yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What have you been excited about? in the Well, news? a couple of things have happened in the in past few weeks that I, that have stuck with me a little bit, which one was that executive, this is, it was in May, so a little while ago now, but an executive order on climate related financial risk. And you know how obsessed I am with risk (laughs) and this notion (laughs) that, you know, once we start to accept what those risks really are, that it really will change things more quickly in our whole economic system. I have this hope that is like my fervent hope and so mm-hmm. that to me was a little, just one of those little signals that we're getting closer to that reality. And I just, it gave me a lot of hope that that pretty soon more and more owners and clients, in addition to cities and designers, will start factoring in climate risk and yeah. really reacting accordingly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. My hope. I, yeah, I know what you mean. I've been spending a lot of time recently thinking about the business of real estate, which is a lot of commercial real estate. And, um, and I think, you know, I mean, and this probably won't surprise listeners that um, I have a certain amount of cynicism, as I guess we have a lot of us do about what changes the market. And so it's, it's become more apparent to me recently that uh, financial risk and sort of what that is going to do to the insurance industry, to the banking industry, mm-hmm. et cetera, that is the biggest force to change some of these conventional commercial real estate businesses, which yep. then in turn, you know, impacts a certain set of real estate. I don't think it necessarily becomes the biggest force for buildings as an industry entirely. Mm-hmm. If you just see what I mean, like there's a lot of things that could fundamentally shift the way that we build and the way that we maintain our buildings. But for that subset of buildings that are kind of run in this very, you know, classic neoliberal way, you know, just like the way that American buildings are, are run if, yep. if they're bigger, um, it really will impact them. And, and you hear that um, from, I'm hearing that from people along that whole spectrum of decision-making from the investors to the mm-hmm. service providers to the owners, you know, even weird kinds of owners who don't hold their buildings for very long, like it all starting to matter so much more. Um, It's just really powerful to see. And that feels like it's it's a combination of the administration caring, but also to some degree, just reaction from the market, you know? Yes. 
Um, so it's not, it doesn't feel temporary to me. It doesn't feel like, well, once Biden is out of office one day, you know, that it would all crumble. It's real, like, this is real, you know, global shifts, global yep. financial market shifts. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Thank <laughs> you. And I totally agree. I have, it is among my geekier things that I do is I, I'm always saying, has anybody been talking to the insurance people lately? Because as soon as the insurance yeah. people make a change, it, everything else will change. The performance on everything will change because yes. if they can't get if they can't get insurance, they can't get financing. And if they can't, you know, like it will all trickle yeah. down. <laughs> yeah, I, I find it totally fascinating. It's one of the nice things about my sort of semi-sabbatical over the past year is that I have actually gotten to talk to like insurance people and mm -hmm. the people who do the inspections for the insurance people and right. people who are like all these really interesting stakeholders in that side and they're all just like I mean shifting major shifting going on um yeah it's 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 wild yep yeah well so there's one other piece of news that I that I mean I'm sure people noticed this but I was very interested a, a lot of our listeners must list must know about Emily uh, Atkin and her newsletter Heated. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. she was noting that, you know, May 26th, there were a, a bunch of things happened in sort of in big oil. And the news about all of that was all about how it was a very bad day for big oil. Yeah. It was all very negative when in fact, the news should have been great day for the planet, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. which just says everything you need to know about how we are still our, our whole system is rooted in, you know, fossil fuels. And this was, this was there for on a number of fronts, a number of things happened um, with Exxon and with, with Chevron and Shell that, that equated to a turning point in many ways for those, for that industry, but it, but it, should, but it's a positive, it's a net positive for us yeah. and for the future. Yeah. So she was lamenting very eloquently about how it was how it played in the mainstream press and yeah. it really took I, I i paid attention to that sort of communication thing because i do remember seeing it and i didn't really want also we don't want to we're not crowing about you know bad news for oil companies what we're excited i mean they're this they should all be wanting to turn this corner with us <laughs> yeah right, right? And i mean it's I mean, interesting because like not a lot of the news like the fact that Exxon got new board members isn't like uh, like no one died you know like this is actually just a, <laughs> this is a, a, a political shift for the organization yeah. etc um, yeah. and yeah I mean yeah it was my birthday the next day and so um it was it, there was honestly no better birthday present than waking up to an inbox with Emily Atkins saying it was a great day for the climate, you know, like today is yep. a great day for the planet. Uh, it's yeah. like, yay. This yeah. Is something yeah. I really appreciated her take on that. And, and it, it is really just telling about how we, we see this. And I wish we could flip that narrative because yeah. if we, if we could all get to the point where that transition is a positive one, mm -hmm. you know, for a variety of industries and because we should all be focused on, you know, a future <laughs> mm -hmm. a livable and you know thrivable future ahead so yeah exactly it's it should be a joyful feeling in many ways and I yeah. think yeah she um we have so few of those opportunities sometimes to feel like that you know that we should just take it when we can um so yeah I I totally appreciate that um and and yeah 
felt that way on those days. Tried to tried to hold that uh, and keep it for later. Yep. Yep. Well, that's probably a good moment too to shift and introduce our guest for today. Um, we are super excited to have Dana Borland with us today. Welcome, Dana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're so happy you're here. I'm going to do a quick introduction and then we'll jump into some questions. Dana is uh, committed to solving our housing and climate crises in ways that advance, advance racial, economic, environmental, and climate justice. Most recently, Dana led the creation of the environment program at the JPB Foundation, which is one of the largest private foundations in the US, where she continues to contribute to the overall direction of the program and foundation. Dana is the author of a recent book, Gray to Green Communities, A Call to Action on the Housing and Climate Crises, which was published this year by Island Press. Uh, Dana, to get us started, I would love it if you could just tell us about how and why you got involved in affordable housing and sustainability. Um, what's been your path? Yeah, thanks again for having me. It's great to be in conversation with you both. And I enjoyed your preamble too, and just would add uh, that it's a great day for people, you know, at the end mm -hmm. of the day, um, there are so many people who are on the front lines of the oil, big oil and gas uh, infrastructure. So whenever we can halt that, and a lot of uh, friends and colleagues are on the front lines right now in Minnesota protesting line three. So, um, you know, I, I, that gets at how and why I got involved in affordable housing and sustainability, really having an interest in this notion that some of us, because of, you know, our parents and color of our skin and our zip code um, because of various housing policies and practices. We live longer, we have more wealth, we have better security and well-being. And so, you know, I got involved in this work really out of a calling for justice and equality. My parents are both uh, missionaries actually and left El Paso, Texas to go to England. Um, but, you know, I, I have evolved uh, to really think about things from that lens. And by the time I was 17, actually, I had moved 11 different times, predominantly because my parents were trying to find housing that they could afford on a missionary salary, on a church salary. Um, but for me as a kid, you know, I didn't really know much about what my parents were up to and, and didn't really understand always why we were moving. But what I did notice was that some of the houses were great. You know, I really enjoyed living there. They added to my well-being. It was a joy to come home. Um, and then other houses, you know, I didn't really like so much. There was one house and we always called our homes by the street they were on. And it was, uh, it was Wokenham Road. And I love the outside of our house. It had a great garden and um, we had wonderful neighbors, but my brothers actually had to go each day or maybe it wasn't each day, but they would go into the um, backyard. There was a big bin of coal and they collected the coal and, and my mom would use that. My mom did the cooking in our house. Um, and the, you know, it would, it would heat up this big August stove and my brother developed asthma. But when we moved to another house, Actually, we came to the United States. We were in Southern California, much drier climate, um, no moisture in the house, you know, that kind of thing. His asthma cleared up and 
he went on to have a really successful uh, athletic career, actually. So it was those kind of things that as a kid, I began to pick up, you know, my own lived experience of moving a lot and what that did to my own sense of stability and security, my academic achievements. Um, and then as I began to study in college and um, in graduate school, you know, courses like environmental and resource economics, I did a course in graduate school on feminist economics that um, was one of the first courses that Fud, Fud, uh, Ford underwrite it, underwrote um, to really explore this uh, feminist theory of economics. You know, that also then just solidified, solidified for me an interest in centering housing and community development in anything I did um, and brought me then to, you know, various jobs over the years that in some way or another had housing at the center, but also understood that how we were building was having a huge impact on the environment and on our planet um, as much as it was having an impact on people. Um, so really looking for ways to combine these interests of improving the health and well-being of people and our planet in ways that were promoting equity and justice. That's amazing. I, that's fascinating about your moving that many times too. And, and what an interesting perspective that brought you on, on just the notion of housing, um, seeing so many different homes. Um, I wonder if you could share a little bit about what you think people should know about working in housing broadly, and, and perhaps also about working at a foundation. You ended up in philanthropy. What should, what should people know about that? <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one of my jobs, actually, when I was in college, I did an internship in Oak Park, Illinois, at the Oak Park Housing Center, which um, really had a, a huge impact, maybe in the country, particularly in the in the region of understanding uh, our sort of housing practices on racial segregation in communities. And, and my job uh, at the Oak Park Housing Center was to observe um, how the community and, and particularly, you know, real estate agents were um, trying to scare people into selling their homes by having black and, and brown people um, coming and, and going from homes. And, and so um, for me, you know, I think what people should, should maybe know about housing it is particularly in this day and age where we've lived through the summer that we had last year with the murder of George Floyd and, and so many others, that housing is at the center of uh, a, a lot of our racist practices in this country. And so um, if that's of interest to people, they should understand that by working in this really large field actually of housing broadly, that it's a terrific opportunity to also address these systemic issues and to advance racial justice in this country. You know, housing is not only about four walls and a roof. Um, you know, housing has everything to do with land use and zoning, with uh, community engagement and planning, with finance, and certainly with design and engineering. There's a whole legal aspect to the housing sector, certainly policy, really anything anybody's interested in could be applied you know, to housing and to uh, working on 
our housing crisis to make sure that everyone has access to a home that they can afford regardless of their race or income. And um, so I hope people understand that, you know, that there's a whole continuum. To me, housing is not, it's not like an end product, it's a process and a continuum. Um, and it's been a real joy, you know, because housing is of great interest to me, but yet I have other areas of interest as I heard both of you talk about your interest too in finance or in um, insurance or, or any of those um, other areas that you, you, know, you can still have an entry point um, to the housing field broadly speaking. And, and certainly that's been true, you know, I think uh, of my role now within a private foundation. And I started out after graduate school, actually also working for a foundation doing community planning work um, in the Northwest. So I, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a sector I knew anything about other than in college, you know, having worked a little bit with um, a foundation for community projects I was involved in, but I don't think we, you know, we don't. I don't think we often think of philanthropy as a profession. But um, maybe we can get to that later and help uh, some of your audience see that that might be a great career path for them too. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we will definitely get to that, and and I really appreciate this point of just about how. Well, it's actually a couple of things. It's this, it's the diversity of roles involved in, in working with housing, but it's also this point that you make that I think sometimes can get lost, especially in the sort of quote buildings industry, um, which is just that, that housing is not just the creation of housing. Um, I think you're one of those people that knows that really well from the angle that you've approached or various angles you've approached it from in your career is that it, it's um it's it's a it's it's more than just the question of the four walls and the roof. Um, so yeah, I love that, and um, we can talk more about it. I want to hear more about all the things you think that need to happen. So let's let's dive into your work a little bit more specifically now. Um, can you tell us just to start what has been something you've been most proud of in your career so far, anyway? Oh yeah, uh, great question. Um, good reflective one, actually. You know, I, I think I'm most proud of the role I find myself playing a lot of times, which is connecting the dots. You know, I think I'm a person, um, maybe because of my lived experience, having seen things from different geographies and, and vantage points, um, I, re I really like to connect the dots and, and solve problems. And, you know, I, I, I am proud of the role I played in what I talk about a lot in the, in the book, Greater Green, is bringing the benefits of green building into the affordable housing sector, because, you know, we all know it, but it's worth repeating that we're just at this point in our human history, an extraordinary point really where the people who had the least to do with creating these crises are indeed the ones who are feeling the impact the greatest. And to be able to work um, in a very collaborative way with you know, many, many partners, uh, so many amazing people from elected officials to residents um, to figure out how we could change the way that we were thinking about and delivering housing in this country to a point now where 27 states require the green communities criteria, which is something I had a hand in developing to make sure that, you know, the way that we are 
developing and retrofitting and preserving housing in this country has these great economic and environmental and health benefits that we know can come from a holistic implementation of green building methods and materials. So, you know, to date, I think that's that's my biggest accomplishment. And along the way, just always feeling satisfied when uh, I'm able to have a role in solving the, or at least uh, attempting to solve great challenges by helping to connect dots and connect people and connect sectors. Yeah, I can see that. It, and it's also just so clear from the way that you talk about things that, um, I mean, we talk a lot about systems thinking on our show and, and you seem like a natural systems thinker that's kind of trying to weave together those pieces. Um, so, so yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about the book. I'm curious what inspired you to write it. Um, so maybe we'll start with that. Like wh why write the book? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so fundamentally, the, the book is about how we can all work together to avert these dual crises of climate change and housing affordability in one fell swoop from going from gray to green. And I uh, worked for this amazing nonprofit called Enterprise Community Partners from 2002, I believe, until about 2012. And within that time frame, worked and really helped to launch this effort called the Green Communities Initiative, which I just spoke about. And, and so the, for me, and I guess it was 2010, uh, I had just met so many phenomenal people who were committed to this new way of thinking about housing in our country and had already developed, you know, very green. And I say very green, meaning, you know, they had thought about the location of the housing. They had spoken to the residents and future residents about what they wanted. They had explored healthier and more sustainable materials and were on the front lines of, you know, thinking about solar, but certainly about energy and water conservation. And so that, you know, this is back, you know, in early 2000s. Um, and so I just felt compelled to write, write up what I had been seeing as a way of saying thank you to everyone who was already involved in this movement. And I went as a way of bringing attention to what was underfoot, because a lot of times you know, this country doesn't do a good job of recognizing what's happening in the affordable housing sector. It doesn't get a lot of press. I mean, that's changing, thank goodness, um, in this new administration. But for the most part, I don't think we see affordable housing as a great place of innovation and solutions. We think of it as maybe something someone else needs to deal with or, um, you know, something that sort of will take care of itself over time. But in fact, it's full of these imaginative, committed, super smart um, people in all the areas that I spoke about that are involved in housing. And so I wanted to write a book that was a thank you. I, I love this idea of writing a book as a thank you. I just think that's so profound. And, and, and it's... Um... It's also just, it's such a way of recognizing, uh, of making sure that we all take stock of like what has, what has happened, why it happened, the way it happened, all of that. We learn so much from that, but just at the very base level, the idea that something needs to be, that, that a thank you is a gesture to the world um, is exciting. And I hope it motivates people to read the book because I find that to be like a, 
I don't know, just a wholly um, honorable reason to write a book. Um, I, I love it. Akira, I hope you can relate to that, by the way. I feel like Women in Green was a book that is very much a, a collective thank you as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. in every way. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, well, let's, uh, there, there is so much more though to the book. I, I wanna just highlight one thing that comes up that that popped out um, to Kira and I about the book. Um, it, it's that the timing of the book has been really great. Um, the calls to action that you talk about in the book um, often have to, they, they deal with policy in some ways. There are many of them that deal with policy. And so I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about how it feels to you with the Biden administration moving in and prioritizing some of the things that you talk about in the book. How is it feeling to you right now? Um, and do you want to just share with people like what's what's going on um, now that we have a new administration coming in? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I should say, I you know, even though I wanted to write the book as a thank you, I failed miserably because it took me so long to do it. Um, I sat down to really, you know, write it in 2011. Um, I took a month out and thought I would get it done in a month, which is crazy. <laughs> oh, <wow>. um, <laughs> I knew nothing. I knew nothing about book writing. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it only recently got published 10 years later, really. And the, and the reason I was compelled to finish the book is a yes, I still had this desire to highlight and thank people. And that was my driving force. But in my position now at the JPB Foundation, I just, I, I wasn't seeing us think about climate and housing together. And, and I know that our window is closing yet from experience, I completely believe and know it's true that it's within our grasp to fundamentally change the course of human history by addressing these two crises together from transitioning from this green way of doing it that benefits a few, but really has lasting negative impacts on so many to a green future that um, you know, benefits all of us now and, and in the long run in terms of both people and planet. So, um, yeah, I, who knew, you know, because I finished all the editing and whatnot on the book um, before the national presidential election. So it was thrilling, you know, to now see in the first hundred days so much come out of this new administration that was, well, A, you know, of their main commitments, climate change and racial equity and um, ending the pandemic and advancing economic opportunities, you know, that's music to my ears and I think to so many of us who devoted our lives and careers to this work. Um, so it was, it was uh, amazing then to kind of, you know, you go to the last chapter of the book and see so much of what I was calling for also now being reflected in what the administration was talking about. So what we have today now is a kind of once in a generation, maybe once in a forever kind of opportunity to take an administration who understands the importance of housing, understands that if we can rethink housing in a way that centers racial justice, uh, we can 
advance that as we're also addressing our climate chaos in front of us. And so there's about $380 billion of new and expanded funding right now from the various um, CARES Act and, and uh, the jobs plan and the infrastructure plan. So it's, um, it's an opportunity that now requires all of us to show up. It's an all hands on deck situation to make sure that this money gets to where it needs to go in a way that's gonna benefit the people who have had the least to do with causing the crises in the first place. And um, so, you know, I think there's so much to say. I'm certainly not a policy expert, but the fact that across agencies um, with HUD included, but also the Department of Energy and the Department of Transportation and Treasury Department, you know, all putting their best foot forward to provide the resources needed to both build new, we need you know, at, at least 11 million, if not uh, tens more million dollars worth of new housing construction in this country. At the same time, we must preserve what exists and retrofit it to prepare people living there for climate impacts as well as just the tremendous energy burden people who are currently locked in that kind of housing um, are facing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so it's, I think it's a tremendous opportunity. I, you know, um, I just would call on all of us not to be afraid that, you know, we can provide housing at the rate and scale we need in a way that's also advancing climate action. And because, because it's not, as we said, about four roofs, four walls and a roof. What the amount of materials that we are going to require to build and preserve housing at this scale is either going to completely kind of destabilize us because we just don't have enough materials, or it's an opportunity uh, to create new materials in a way where they're going to be healthier, where they're not laden with uh, embodied carbon, which is what is currently happening. So on one hand, there's a lot of complexity to the challenge in front of us, but at least the administration is uh, you know, providing what we need to get started. And I think collectively the onus is on us to make good use of that funding and to prove that we need to make it permanent and really end both our housing and our climate crises together. I love this vision, and I hope it's motivating for people. I, I, I mean, it's. Um, I was going to ask you, like, is that? Do you want to have a, any sort of like call to action for this for the listeners specifically? Like, you know, what what should everybody be going out and trying to to do to make this happen right now? But I think you captured it by just saying, like, yeah. I mean, there's there's something very um, profound, and yet it sounds a little bit mundane to say we need to spend the money well. You know, but like, uh, that's that seems like a good call to action to me, right? We're all gonna have to go out there and spend this money well and show, yeah, just the impact that it can have. Um, anything else though that you want to like, you know, make sure everybody hears sternly from from you? Like, we gotta we gotta do this right. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that because I think it's worth kind of elaborating on do this well. You know, if anything, over this past year and a half, and it continues to be for so many of us, you know, we're still uh, trying to recover from and address this pandemic. And, and I personally 
really fully understand in a way I thought I did before, but didn't really, that my health is dependent on your health. And, and I have always been aware of this concept of interconnectivity, but wow, we saw it play out, didn't we? In our own backyards, in our neighborhoods and in mm-hmm. communities um, that continued to just disproportionately bear the burdens of everything, including something like a pandemic because of our history and our current practices. And so, you know, fundamentally, I think it's it's good for everybody listening to to just acknowledge it, almost say it out loud, write it down, that we all benefit from cleaner air, water, and soil in a society where we all have a place to live that we can afford. I mean, if we hadn't uh, evicted people during the pandemic, I think the statistics say there would have been a 15% um, decrease in the amount of people who died, right? Like we, we can't be living into sort of this chaos that's ensuing around climate change and not have everybody securely, affordably, safely housed. Um, And so when I say, let's spend this money well, what I'm really saying is let's all show up in support of and in in a way that is accountable to the communities who have just never gotten the resources that they deserve because of the way our systems are set up and have been particularly as it relates to housing in ways that have segregated us by race and by class. And so, you know, that's what I would urge urge us all to do um, and to make sure that we're, you know, sort of bending that arc, so to speak, um, and using this time to change systems. Uh, That's what I get most excited about, quite frankly, Lindsay, is that we have uh, the opportunity to change the rules of the game if, if we, use this money wisely um, and in support of and in a, you know, being accountable to particularly those black and indigenous and uh, Asian American communities of color who we have not allowed to prosper and flourish in this country. Yes, um, amen to that. And I wanna ask you one now last question on my end, which I think actually is about one of these systems that has to change, but maybe that's just my opinion. I wanna hear yours, um, which is around what we think of as the green building industry, uh, also thought of, I think, as a movement. Um, So I I wanna hear your thoughts about um, the green building industry as a whole. Do do you feel like you're a part of this industry? Do you feel like you're a part of a movement? Um, How do you feel about that for yourself? Uh, Yeah, I guess we'll just start there. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, you know what it means to feel a part of a movement. Quite frankly, I think it's a little bit because of my own upbringing. Um, you know, growing up in England and then coming to the United States, I've always felt a little bit outside of an, a mm. bit of an outsider, no matter what I'm doing. And so, um, I felt that way with the green building movement. You know, a little bit on the outside because we had we really had to, we felt compelled to create the Green Community Initiative because at the time the green building movement wasn't, wasn't really paying attention to housing. Um, and we were, you know, we were gonna get left behind yet again with this incredible benefit in this way of thinking about building um, using green methods and materials and processes. So, you know, I, I've, I've always felt a little bit outside of the movement um, 
so I, I'm not sure if if I'm answering your question, but um, you know, I think I think there are many movements underway, and there's a there's a, always a place I think we can find where we feel like we're part of of that movement. What I see happening though is this collision of movements, which is so amazing that we're coming together and recognizing my movement is dependent on your movement and uh, vice versa. And that we need to, you know, sort of understand that and show up for one another. And we're, we're seeing that, I think. Dana, I love that idea of those merging movements and them being, you know, having mutual benefits and things like that. Um, I wonder, and I, I think your perspective on being sl slightly outside of the movement and then creating green communities because of that is just so fantastic. Um, where did you think we would be either as a movement or a, a merged set of movements maybe, or an industry by the 2020s, given your you know time in this world? Yeah, I mean, I have a very, I have a visual of this because, <laughs> Um, and I'm bad with dates, but I'm pretty sure it was early 2011. And I had a hand in bringing together hundreds of people. Pretty sure we were in Houston, Texas, if not, no, Dallas, Dallas. Um, and we came together in this really participatory sort of meeting. We were using keypads and polling each other and deciding whether or not the affordable housing sector could be all green by 2020. And, you know, we had some nuances and sort of, you know, definitions to what that meant. But generally speaking, you know, in the next 10 years, could we make everything green existing and new housing? And so I, I thought we could get there, you know, and everybody in that room thought we could get there. Um, but boy, we did not get there. <laughs> um, you know, I think a lot of the new construction is being developed to green standards, certainly with the green communities criteria being required in 27 housing finance agencies uh, requirements for housing tax credits and other incentives. But, but we have a long way to go, particularly with all the existing housing. I'm still floored and in my current capacity, we're investing quite heavily because 500 million people still are getting exposed to lead paint in this country. And those are predominantly, again, you know, black and brown children living in communities that have just been completely underserved by our current systems. And so we have a long way to go. Um, I thought we would be further along. And I, I think this kind of wind in our sail with a new administration is so it was so needed and is so timely to give us that extra boost and maybe you know leap forward together um, and and do this at an accelerated pace using even you know smarter thinking and how to get there and centering people and our planet uh, in all we do and you know again I think also fundamentally going about our business differently I, I start off the book talking about the importance of land sovereignty you know I'm here on uh, occupied Lenape and um, Wappinger land, Muncie land. And you know what, what we also just need to fundamentally understand is that communities have, must have uh, sovereignty and the right 
to have effective access to and control over and use of their land. And if we could start there, um, as we have this wind in our sail and really do things different, but yet, you know, get there faster and smarter, I, I think we'll be better for it. So the long-winded way of saying, I thought we'd be further along. Um, I certainly recall a room full of people committed to <laughs> being further along by 2020 than we are today, but we've come a long way. And I, I think there's still that commitment and desire to get there. That's a wonderful way to begin to wrap this up. I, I particularly appreciate the notion of centering people. And I also appreciate that you sort of corrected my, my uh, preamble comments about the bad day for big oil being a good day for the planet. In fact, it's a good day for people. I mean, you're absolutely right. We have to keep people at the center of it. And if it's the center of all of this, then that will actually drive this system change in the right direction for everyone. Um, it's really it's really a powerful thought and a, and a great sort of focal point that we can all, I think, <laughs> agree on and come back to, you know, to, to drive what, what's happening. Um, I want to wrap up with a last question that we like to ask, which is, who are you most inspired by these days in terms of leaders? And these could be anyone, climate movement, built environment, or any person. What, who keeps you going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so many. I mean, there were so many individuals uh, I could name. And uh, I have the great fortune working at JPB of meeting so many extraordinary people who have put their entire lives behind what they believe in. And it's extraordinary on a daily basis. I'm moved uh, and inspired. Um, my short answer, though, to your question would be the youth, you know, and I don't mean that as a cop out that we're handing over a mess <laughs> to the youth. I, uh, I've been spending quite a bit of time with youth-led organizations, climate justice leaders, and it's remarkable just how differently they see the world, I think, than we did at their age. They understand the intersectionality. They totally get that we're all connected. And, and they have this attitude, you know, of just absolutely, we must do things different. And they're putting everything else about their lives on hold to keep us accountable. And when they are in elected offices and heads of major corporations, the world's going to be a completely different place. And it is invigorating to spend time with them and listen to their vision and what they're implementing. You know, these are youth of action and I find it completely inspiring. That's wonderful. Yeah, it is. And it's also, I, I feel like we didn't manage to ask you too much more about working in the, in the world of philanthropy, but that's like a good tiny um, point about like what makes it great to work in philanthropy is that you get to be exposed to all of these people and uh, a lovely way to wrap it up I think for those of you thinking about um, your career paths um, because yeah Dana I'm so inspired this is you have had such a an inspi inspiring incredibly impactful path thus far and I know that uh, our listeners and we are gonna be watching every moment of what you do next. So thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. What a treat. I really appreciate the platform that you both have created and allowed all of us women to participate in. Thank you.
Of course. And yeah, it makes it worth doing building the platform to have conversations like this one today. Um, it's been really wonderful. So thank you. Um, and thank you all for listening. That is it this week for us on the Design the Future podcast. Uh, thanks to our producers and to all of you for participating in the community. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.